Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Well, I have, um, I want to say hi to everyone over in Sanctuary too. Uh, we're streaming over there at this point. And um, I've got Pastor Jeff and Pastor Matt with me. We've got some exciting and very good news to share about Pastor Nate. And uh, it's not bad. I didn't say that in the first service, so I'm just helping you guys out quite a bit right now. So, um, But before I share that really good news, um, I wanted to just take a step back and uh, talk about Nate for a couple of minutes. And, you know, he started on staff 20 years ago this year. He's been on staff for 20 years. He's done everything from mowing and edging lawns to painting the building to uh, youth ministry, a young adult ministry. He was an assistant pastor for a while. And he's been our senior pastor for 11 years now. Uh, Easter Sunday is always his senior pastor anniversary. So 11 years. And uh, I've been here for almost 10 coming. I've been on staff for six. Jeff's been here all but maybe a couple of months of Nate being a senior pastor. And Matt, even did ministry back with him when he was at another church when they were at youth camps together and stuff. So um, we are uh, three of our four pastoral leadership team members. Nate is the other one, so that's why we're up here. But what we've seen in Nate uh, over the years is a real burden for each of you, um, for God to really work and transform your lives. Um, and it, it's very real and evident um, we've seen a burden for God's word, uh, a huge burden for God's word to get into every nook and cranny of your lives and um, to really uh, allow the Holy Spirit to have that material to do the work uh, in transforming all of us. And then we see a, a, a burden for our community that our church would be would get Jesus, that he would be uh, hold that right place in our heart of being the famous one for us and that we would want to see Jesus famous all throughout our community. Um, And so as a result of those burdens, um, he consistently pours into God's word personally um, in a way that I've never seen someone do before. Um, And also as a pastor, he pours into God's word as he's studying, preparing. And um, he pours out by teaching us writing a ton of very helpful things for us, uh, ministering to individuals. And so I can't tell you how many times I've gotten the 6 a.m. email uh, from his, an article that's dropped on his website that's been what the Lord has, has wanted uh, me to hear that particular day. So, um, and he pours out to our staff team as well. He teaches us on a weekly basis in a staff chapel that we do, leads us well. Um, and he's just connected with so many of you on Sundays, and he's always listening to hear from the Lord about what we need to be doing to minister most effectively uh, as a church uh, to our church family. But it's not just that he does those things. It's, uh, it's how he does them. I would say, if I could say it succinctly, it's scheduled diligence uh, with little margin for error. Uh, he runs hard. He studies hard. He pours out. Um, and so certainly that's, 
because of the call God has on his life and it's fueled by the Holy Spirit. But um, it's, it's self-discipline. You know, I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where Paul's talking about running a race to win the prize. And he does that. Uh, you know, that athletes run it to win a crown or a prize that's temporary. But we do it for an eternal prize that will last. And so I think that um, I've seen that be Pastor Nate over these many years. And at the same time, you know, we've, we've heard of pastors who've given their lives to the ministry that have not finished well. And he's not that man. He's done well pouring into his relationship with his wife, Christina, and with his three girls as well. And so he's a great example uh, for us there. And so taking all this into account, uh, we, and when I say we, I mean our board of directors that sets budgets and funds things, our leadership team of pastors, our staff, and by faith I know many of you here as well uh, will join me in saying that we are super grateful to be able to give Pastor Nate and his family a sabbatical this summer. So, yeah, you can applaud it for me. He's going to be able to refresh, be with his family, um, get recharged for the next season of ministry. And, you know, a result of sabbaticals, uh, healthy ministry, longevity as a pastor, a long-term fruit in an area. Um, and so we're, we're excited for that. And then for us, we get to exercise a little bit more faith, too. If any of us have not understood that Jesus is our ultimate senior pastor, as Nate says often, uh, we get to realize that God's going to still be working, still be moving, still be doing great things uh, all throughout the summer, and we're excited about that. So, um, so here's the plan. June 9th will be uh, Nate's last Sunday in the pulpit until... He'll be back on August 11th, but he won't be in the pulpit again until August 18th. So he's going to get a couple of months to just refresh and recharge. We will send him off well and pray for them on on, uh, June 9th. Um, And I know Nate doesn't like any of what I'm doing right now, Um, but we just wanted to to honor him. And so I'm going to invite him up to share about what they'll be doing and then also what the church will be doing over the summer. Would you share your appreciation with him as he comes up? Thank you, everybody. You can be seated. Appreciate that. That's very nice of you. And uh, if you know me at all, you know that uh, I just want to get into Hebrews 11 right now. <clears throat> but um, I, I uh, Andrew, that was that was really well done, and uh, just I uh, love your heart for me, and and uh, just the way that you shared, and it. And, and also, he added a couple touches this service that were really helpful to you. The first service, the lights were dim. And he also didn't say anything about a sabbatical till the very end. And it was just everybody was like, he, Nate's out of here. I thought I was leaving. By the time it was over, I thought, I think I'm going. I think it's over. So, good job, man. 
And with the guys standing back here, too, I mean, it just, I thought it was over. I thought it was happening. Now, I'm, so, I'm probably supposed to say something about, you know, being super reluctant to receive this or something like that, but that, that'd just be a lie. I am not at all. I'm very happy to, to have a sabbatical, and, and uh, my, my hope is, uh, you know, I've got a few hopes for this. One is uh, I'm looking forward to rest. Absolutely. Um, physical rest for sure, but I try to pace myself in life and ministry. But what I am really looking forward to is the mental and emotional rest. Uh, just n- not preparing, writing, studying, thinking in that kind of way. I'm really looking forward to um, having that in my whole adult life. Um, probably since I was 19 or 20 years old, I don't think I've gone more than three weeks without teaching a a brand new, you know, sermon from God's Word. So I'm really looking forward to, to that. And then um, I'm also really looking forward to connection with um, my family. What we're going to do is we're going to go to England for a month, and then we're going to go to Lake Tahoe after that, which is our tradition every summer. And just kind of putting those two things together, this just, to me, feels like a really great gift of a time for our family. My oldest daughter is 15, turning 16 in the fall. My middle daughter is 13, and my youngest daughter is 11. And it's not easy growing up these days, and it's not easy launching into adulthood at any time of life, but I think especially in this generation. So we have a great relationship with our kids. We've been laying that groundwork for a long time, but we're really looking forward to kind of reinforcing those uh, bonds for everything they're going to need to go through in the next decade or so of their uh, lives. So we're looking forward to that. And then I'm also really looking forward to um, just inspiration in ministry. You know, Christina and I, we, we love you. We love this community. We uh, have a long-term vision for what God wants to do through our lives here uh, in this place. So when we think about our future, when we think about our lives, you know, we, like you, we know that our lives belong to the Lord, that he's sovereign, that he can lead us and take us wherever he wants to go, and that we have to say yes to him. But as best as we can tell, uh, we see ourselves here for a really, really long time. So just imagine in your own life, if there's something new that you want to try, some, a, a new way that you kind of want to live, a new, a new style that you want to, you know, I don't even know really what it is, but it's just a lot of times many people get to just move to a new job or a new location or a new place, and you're building those new connections and all that. I've been looking at this church building for the last 20 years, you know, and so I'm looking forward to just having a little time to hit that reset button and kind of hear from the Lord, like, okay, Nate, you're... Your 30s are over with, your 20s are over with, your 40s are happening, your 50s are going to be coming. Here's some ways that I want you to do ministry in the future that maybe you haven't done in the past. And, um, you know, I'm not promising, I mean, don't get your hopes up, but <laughs> really been hoping he'd change that thing about him. But I mean, you can pray for it, but uh, so I'm really looking forward to, uh, to that. Um, while I'm gone, you know, one of my big responsibilities, obviously, is the Sunday pulpit. I do other things as well. But 
I did want to tell you about Sundays while I'm away. I'm going to finish Hebrews on June 2nd, Lord willing, and then on June 9th, my last Sunday, I'll begin a study in the book of Philippians. So I'll start the series through Philippians, and then as you can see on the screen uh, in front of you, I have invited a group of men uh, to share from the book of Philippians throughout the whole summer, and then I'll come back and I'll give the last teaching in the book of Philippians. And I'm happy for this for a couple reasons. One is, you know, our, our church, our fellowship has always been founded upon God, his gospel, and the word of God. So even though, you know, your lead pastor, your senior pastor is going to be gone for a couple of months, the word of God is always here. And this is the message that we all know and understand, but it'll be a great way for us to live that out during the summer. So my friend Andy Dean, he's the director of Calvary Chapel Bible College in Southern California where I went to school. He's a great pastor. He's been here, I think, the last couple of Augusts he's come and shared with us. And I love him and his family so much. And he's going to come and share for the first uh, three Sundays that I'm gone. They're actually going to stay in our home because they're coming here. They're coming here the week of the U.S. Open, so there's like no room in the inn. (laughs) So they're going to stay in our house, and we're glad to to have them and and, uh, get a little time themselves as a family here on the Monterey Peninsula Explore. So he'll share through Philippians and Riley Monzo who you know was leading worship this morning, great and uh, great man, growing teacher, and, and I'm just so blessed to have him share the word with you. Then my friend David Guzik, who runs EnduringWord.com, uh, a widely accessed commentary through all of Scripture, an incredible teacher, great man, real mentor of mine. Uh, I'm so happy to have him come and not only share the word with us, which he will do and he'll do in a wonderful way, but also to talk a little bit about his ministry And then also Pastor Jeff and Pastor Matt concluding Philippians. And then, like I said, I'll come back and I'll teach the final uh, study in Philippians and kind of bookend them. So we'll see if it all works out, but that's the plan for this summer. And then also, if you follow me on my blog, I actually have articles already queued up and ready to go through the whole summer. So if uh, if you miss me, you can read my stuff during the summertime. (laughs) And I'll be back in, like Andrew said, mid uh, August. So really excited about you know what God's going to do for our church and then uh, for myself and my family during this time. So I really would like to stop talking about it though right now and get into Hebrews chapter 11. So if you could open up your Bibles there and if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand in the air and we'll get one to you. Uh, today we have a small little section of scripture Hebrews chapter 11, we are moving verse by verse through the book of Hebrews, and today we pick it up in verse 23. Verse 23. And we'll read this again as we move through it, but I think it'd be so great to just read the whole thing. This is about the faith of Moses. It says in verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered, verse 26, the reproach of Christ Christ 
greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, verse 28, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Let's pray together. Father, I'm just uh, thankful to you for such a loving church family, and I'm thankful to you, Lord, for the gift of this time off this summer. And I pray, Lord, that on every front, known and unknown, you would use it, Lord, for your glory and for your purposes, Lord, here on earth. Let your kingdom come and your will be done as a result, Lord, of this time. We also, Lord, pray for our time in your word this morning. We ask, Lord, that you'd help us to grow in our faith and, Lord, to exhibit a faith like Moses, who in the face of so much pressure was steadfast in choosing uh, the right identity. And so, Lord, we pray for that. We ask that you do that in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. It's good to remember as we read the book of Hebrews, the condition of the first people who read this letter. They were feeling marginalized. They were feeling outcast from their society. They were feeling that their belief in Jesus, specifically that he is the Christ, Savior, they felt that that was making them different from the society that they lived in. They were Hebrews, after all, and most of their fellow countrymen had rejected Jesus. They did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah Christ. And most of their fellow countrymen would not have approved of the way that the message of the gospel was reaching Jew and Gentile outside of the trappings of the temple and the sacrificial system and all of the Old Testament traditions that they had embraced for so many years. And so these Jewish Christians who had grown up in all of that, who had friends and family members and communities that were still entrenched in all of those beliefs, they were beginning to feel very different, outcast, as I said, marginalized, as I said. And so the author to the Hebrews communicated to them throughout this letter that Jesus is special. Jesus is better. Don't let go of him. But then after building that case, he said, so here are some things, though, that you'll need to do. Like I've been mentioning, one of the things that he told them to do in chapter 10 was to connect to like-minded believers who could encourage each other or encourage them to a life of love and good works. You know, when you're feeling different, you're feeling marginalized, you gotta find other people who share those same convictions about Jesus with you. He said, don't let go of Jesus. Don't let go of that original confession of yours. Hold fast to your confession. But he also told them to live by faith. And 
in telling them to live by faith, he decided to explain it with all these different Old Testament characters and how they lived by faith. He talked about Enoch, Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. But today he comes to Moses. Now, if you were a Hebrew growing up in that culture, if you were a Jew growing up in that culture, Moses was the man. I mean, you loved Moses. If you're a little, little kid, little boy, little girl, you loved Moses. He's like the superhero of Israel. I mean, this guy cruised into Egypt one day and told Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, God says, let my people go. And that guy said over and over again, no, I won't let him go. No, I won't let him go. And God responded with plague after plague after plague until the 10th plague, the Passover, or the angel of death, gave way to him saying, please go. And then even changing his mind after that and God consuming the armies of Egypt with the Red Sea. And Moses was at the center of all of that. The people of Israel, these little Jewish boys and girls, they knew about Moses and his story. And so it's beautiful that the author points out Moses and his great faith that he displayed uh, in the Lord. Now, the setting that Moses grew up in was a hostile environment, similar in some ways to the hostile environment that these Jewish Christians were dealing with, but dissimilar in many ways. The the Jews, at the time that Moses was born, were a people encompassed by another people, the people of Egypt. And what began as a friendly relationship with Joseph extended from a year to 10 years to 100 years to 400 years. And after 400 years of the Jewish people growing from being a family of 70 plus people to being a family of 2 million plus people, by the end of that, there came a point, the the book of Exodus says, where a Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph. It's another way of saying He didn't really care about all the previous connections and treaties and and, and peaceable relationship that the Egyptians and the Hebrew people had historically had together. And so he put them to forced servitude. As he oppressed them, they grew. This is always the story of God's people. When the pressure comes, when the persecution comes, when the pain comes, it purifies, and that purification grows and expands so often God's people, God's church. So they grew. The Pharaoh saw this, and so he commissioned two or declared two edicts over his people. The first edict was given to the Hebrew midwives who were helping the Hebrew women give birth. And his his command to them was, when those women have a boy, you need to kill the boy. When they have a girl, you can let the girl live, but you must take the life. You must kill. You must murder these little boys when they're born. But these Hebrew midwives, we learn in Exodus chapter 1, they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And so they did not touch the lives of these little boys, and they allowed them to live. So that that led to the Pharaoh giving a second edict to the whole nation. And the second edict said, when you have a baby boy, Hebrew people, you are to take that boy and you are to throw him into the Nile River, likely as a sacrifice to the Egyptian false gods. You're to to give 
the life of your baby boys up to death. Now, that's where we come to the faith that is displayed here in the life of Moses. So let's read in verse 23 together. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, and that was the timeline, that was the environment that he was born in, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, one of the first things that we notice about this first mention of Moses' faith is that it wasn't Moses' faith at all. Did you see that there? It was the faith of his parents. Now, as when Moses became grown, he did a similar thing as his parents. So perhaps that's the part of the reason why it's mentioned is that when he became a grown man, he also did things in the face of or, or disobeyed the orders of the king of Egypt. But here we learn about Moses' parents. Now, Exodus chapter 6 and Numbers chapter 26 tell us that his parents were named Amram and Jochebed. I'm totally nailing the pronunciation, by the way. Amram was the father, I speak in jest, and Jochebed was his mom. And it's fascinating to me the way that the events unfolded. The king gave his edict, Amram and Jochebed got married, they then... Uh, Jochebed became with child. She became pregnant. This baby boy was born, and they saw that he was beautiful. What parent doesn't think this? They hid him for three months. Then when you go back to the book of Exodus, what you learn is that after three months, when they felt they could hide him no longer, they took a basket, covered it in pitch so that it would float, they took him to a strategic place, it seems, at the Nile River and put him in the river in this basket, kind of like we're obeying what the king said, right? He said, put them in the Nile River. I'm putting my child in the Nile River. But I said strategic because Miriam, Moses' older sister, followed the basket on the banks of the river until it came to the place where Pharaoh's daughter, the princess of Egypt, would have been known to have been bathing. She saw this little basket in the distance and sent one of her servants to go get the basket. She brings it to her. She opens it up, and there's a little beautiful three-month-old baby Moses. I think this was super strategic on the part of the parents because, you know, when they're first born, you got the cone head and the face isn't quite right yet, you know? So it's like, oh, wow, yeah. They're gonna look beautiful someday. But at three months, they're just perfect, you know? So she's like, she falls in love. God is sovereign here. He, he, he opens her heart. She falls in love. Miriam comes out of the bushes or reeds and says, would you like me to go find a Hebrew nurse to nurse this boy? And she says, yes, and I will pay her. And so Miriam goes home, gets her mom to come get Moses. Moses' own mom gets to be Moses' nurse and gets paid to do it. It's a really cool situation. Then when Moses is grown, she's required to give Moses back to Pharaoh's daughter, and he's raised in the household of Pharaoh as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I want to talk about their faith in a moment, but if I could just say this for just a second. I was thinking about this with 
the decision that they made to have a child in the first place under those kind of conditions. That would have been a terrifying time, of course, to learn that you're pregnant, to wonder, do we have a boy, do we have a girl? And yet, they had a child, and aren't we thankful they did? And isn't the nation of Israel thankful that they did because Moses came from that union. And we love that. And, I, and, and the thing that I wanted to say, just for, this might only impact one or two of you that are here today, but parents, or, or excuse me, uh, uh, married couples who are able, who you're feeling fear about the possibility of bringing children into this world, and you're, you're feeling, how, how could I raise them in an environment like this? How can I be an example for them? Maybe you're feeling the fear of how could I provide for them financially? How could I take care of all of their needs? I just want to point out Amram and Jochebed to you. You know, I'm sure there were many things that they feared, but they, they, were, they pushed through those fears and were so thankful that they did. And I think part of the reason they were able to do this is because they had, a, I think, a vision for what Moses could become. And if they didn't, at least God did. You see, you have to have a vision for what your children could become. Not to live in fear of what they might become, but to have faith for what they might become. What God might do in and through their lives. And uh, so I just think that's beautiful, that if there was ever a time to listen to fear and refrain from bringing a child into the world. That was the time, but we're so thankful that they pushed past those fears. Now, they had faith, though. You know, they did not, they were not afraid, it says, of the king's edict at the end of verse 23. And why weren't they afraid of the king's edict? Well, notice it there in verse 23. It says, because they saw that the child was beautiful. Now, I, I'd laughed about it just a second ago and said, you know, what parent doesn't think that way. And unfortunately, there are bad parents out there who think little of their children, but most parents would, when a newborn comes into the world, say, I love them, I care about them, I think they're amazing, I think they're beautiful. But it seems that there was something that God had done with Moses that made him stand out. Stephen, in the book of Acts, preached a message to the religious leaders of his day, and in his message, he alluded to Moses, and when he did, he said this, listen, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. So it seems that there was something that God saw with Moses that Moses' parents saw about Moses, that there was a beauty upon this boy, that God had chosen him for a special mission. And so Amram and Jochebed, they thought, our child, there's an exceptional beauty here upon him. God has a special plan for his life. And I think that this is a good attitude for every parent to have. God has a plan for the life of my children. There are things that he wants to do through them. But, but I'm pointing all this out just to show you that part of the reason that they were able to live life in a way where they didn't care about the king's edict 
where they looked in the face of the most powerful man walking the earth at the time, who told them what to do, what to think, how to behave, they looked that edict in the eye and they said, we're not going to buckle to that pressure and here's why. They looked at their baby and they said, he's beautiful. His beauty is so strong that it's like we've forgotten about the edict. His beauty is standing out to us in such a powerful way that it's like we don't care what the king has said. That's what it says. Because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, they were like us. If you were to ask Amram and Jochebed, do you want security? They say, yeah, we want security. Do you want peace? Yeah, we want peace. Do you want acceptance? Yeah, we want acceptance. Are you willing to get those things by paying the price of your child? And they'd say, no, because our child is more beautiful than all of those things. You see, if you want to have faith like these people, you have to get a vision for something that is more beautiful than all the stuff that's attached to the approval of the world. You have to get a vision for something, or should I say it like this, someone who is better than all the things that this world can offer. And I think that part of what Amram and Jochebed show us, I mean, they saw the beauty in Moses, but I think this, they're a great example of what it would look like to have an understanding that God is the most beautiful being that ever is and ever was. And that if we can have God without, even if it costs us the security, the approval, the love of the world that we live in, if we can have God, because he is so beautiful, it's worth it to us. You see, sometimes we'll endure for lesser reasons that are still good. Sometimes a Christian will endure because as they're thinking through their life, they'll think, you know, if I, if I don't continue to walk with the Lord, you know, if I just decide to pursue a line of sin or, a, you know, an, an, a, a life, of, an, an activity of sin that will get me into trouble and all of that, part of the reason I don't want to do it is because I'm thinking about all the things that I would lose. You know, say, Say a man is married and has a family and he's just thinking about, you know, if I, if I brought that into my life, think of all the destruction and all the pain that would come into my life. I would lose so much potentially if I just decided to turn my back on the Lord and just act out on fleshly tendencies. Or you might think of what you might become you know, with a, with a certain line of sin. I mean, sometimes we'll say that line, you know, but by the grace of God, there go I. But sometimes I wonder if we really mean that. If we really understand what human depravity looks like. If we really understand what it would be like if I, if, man, if I entered into this sin and it begat a new sin and be, it begat a new sin, James chapter one tells us that at the end, it conceives, it gives birth and it gives birth to Death, do we really understand that? Do we really think when we hear of the vilest of the vile, but by the grace of God, there go I? That that is possible inside of me. But that might be part of what would keep someone, you know, 
walking with the Lord on the straight and narrow, like, man, I don't want to become a monster, you know, kind of thing. But though those might be thoughts that we have and those might be good things for us to consider, I think it's also great for us, if not better for us, to just consider that we have God, that he is the greatest target, that he is the greatest goal, and that we would want to walk in the light, not so that we can keep what we've gotten, or not so that we can refrain from becoming a monster, but so that we can enjoy him, so that we can walk in the light as he is in the light, and we can partake of fellowship and friendship with him. That's the most beautiful thing that we can have. It says in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. God is worth that affection. He is worth that love. And if I could just say it like this, sometimes if we're honest, we will love God because it's kind of like a way for us to love ourselves. If I do this, then what's God going to give to me? What's God going to bless me with? How's God going to speak to me? What's he going to encourage me with? And it can, if we're not careful, just be another version of self-love rather than saying, no, what I want is I just want God. I want to I know who he is. I want to discover him. He's just beautiful to me. And if I lose everything else but have him, I'm satisfied. That's a, that's a radical faith, I know, but I think it's the kind of faith that these two typified as they lived life uh, so contrary to what the king had to say. Okay, let's move on in the story and see Moses himself. It says in verse 24 to 26, let's read it together. It says, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. All right, so what the author tells us is that a moment came in Moses' life where he decided, he refused, it says, to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That word refused in verse 24, so it's a word that, that means just that, that he made that a decision, that there was a, a, a turning point in Moses' life. And it doesn't speak of a long turning point. It means that there was a moment that came. I, I've decided. I, I, have, I have chosen. It doesn't mean that he was emotional about it and just kind of cruising along and not thinking about it, and then something happened where he made a decision. It likely means that for years, he was wrestling with the question, who am I? I mean, just imagine what it was like for Moses. He became conscious at some point that he was of Hebrew descent. He became conscious at some point of uh, his whole story, his whole life. His name was Moses. His, his, his uh, Pharaoh's daughter gave him the name. It means, it's, it sounds like the word drew him out of the water. So he's like asking like, why'd you name me that? Well, here's the story. You know, so he was conscious of these kind of things, and he's asking the question, who am I? Who am I? And, and he eventually came to a moment where he made a decision. I'm not Egyptian, I'm Hebrew. I'm not part of royalty, I'm part of the suffering class. 
And that must have been a very difficult decision for this man to make. There are some things we know about Moses during that season of his life, and there are many things that we don't know. We don't know, for instance, what his future might have been had he stayed connected to Egypt. I mean, we know on one hand that he would have been judged with the Egyptian nation because God had foreshadowed or promised that that was coming for the Egyptians. That was his plan for the Egyptian nation. Uh, But the historian Josephus, who wrote years after uh, Moses' time, so take it for what it is, but he was a fairly good historian, and he recorded that Moses was in line to be the next pharaoh and had actually gone out as a victorious general for the Egyptians at times in his past. Like I said, we don't know if that's true or not, but that's what Josephus, years after Moses was around, uh, recorded and communicated. But either way, whatever it was, he had a place of privilege, a wonderful position there in Egypt, and he made a decision. He refused He said, I'd rather be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He decided to connect with the shame, the embarrassment, the reproach of being a rejected person, the reproach of Christ. He thought, verse 26, that was greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, this week as I was thinking about this, I was just thinking about what someone might have said to Moses during that time where he's trying to make that decision. Let's imagine you were one of Moses' friends and you're cruising around the palace with Moses and he just opens up one day and he's just honest with you. Like, hey, I'm I'm really kind of struggling with this. I've grown up as the son of uh, Pharaoh's daughter. I'm the grandson of Pharaoh. I've got all this stuff in front of me. I've got all this wealth and opulence and privilege and and I've got a bright future as far as you know it Egypt goes but but I I I know that I'm Hebrew I'm struggling with it and I I think I actually want to connect with them rather than connect to all of this and, and I actually wrote down what this conversation might have looked like I think someone might have said said it like this this is just how I imagine it in my mind Moses You are so set up. And then I said, bro, I had to put that in there. That's how I I felt it would go down, just a bro-on-bro relationship. Moses, you're so set up, bro. You've got it all. Everyone wants to be like you. Everybody wants your position. Then I imagine Moses saying, no, it's It's nothing. I would rather be mistreated with those people, with God's people, than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of all this. I want more than the life I've got. I imagine him saying, I've gone to the pinnacle, and it's, it's, it's not worth it. I, I want something better. And then I imagine someone saying back to him, no, you, you got it backwards. Instead, You have to disengage from that kind of thinking. Disengage from wanting the low or the humble life. Go get yours. You have to think positive. You have to put off the mistreated and the low and put on the good life. Live your best life, Moses. Make it happen. And I imagine Moses saying, no. There's a person that we call the Christ, and he's coming. And I'm part of his kingdom. 
it's a greater treasure to be insulted and rejected for him than to have all the treasure in this world. That is my best life. And Christ, he will reward me anyhow. I mean, the conversation just keeps going and going, but that's, you get the gist. You see, what faith does is faith holds greater values. Moses actually did this thing where he considered, verse 26, the shame, the disgrace of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Faith holds greater values. You see, it doesn't just say that he considered the reproach of Christ something to endure while he rejected the treasures of Egypt. No, he said, no, that's greater wealth. That's something better than what I have today. And think about all the things that Moses got. First of all, he got a legacy. Do you think we'd even be doing a Bible study about Moses if he'd have stayed Egyptian? No, his identity would have been lost to history. God would have raised up someone else, a different vessel to accomplish his work. But we know his name because he was obedient to the Lord. He got eternity, an eternal home with God. He got friendship with God. Did you know that the Bible says that when they went out into the wilderness, there was a tabernacle of meeting that they eventually constructed, and Moses used to go into it every single day and talk with God face-to-face as a man speaks with his friend. He actually would glow as a result of those conversations and come out and everybody liked to see that glow and he would cover his face because it was embarrassing for him for people to see that glow upon him and embarrassing that they would see that glow fade. He didn't want them to watch that. But he had a friendship with God. And here's a reward. He got to be on the winning team. (laughs) I mean... You think years later, Moses was thinking to himself like, man, I really wish I'd have stayed Egyptian. No, I think as the Red Sea closed itself upon the armies of Egypt, he knew that he had made the right decision. But I think most beautiful of all, when Moses heard the Lord say to him, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. When he just heard his maker, his God, say to him, Moses, good job. You made some good decisions, man. You built and had some right priorities. Good job. I think that so touched and so blessed his heart. You see, faith causes you to value things differently than you valued them before. I mean, he could have looked at all of the treasures of Egypt and had a high estimation of those things, but something happened inside of him where he didn't. And he looked at the shame of Christ and he saw it as greater wealth. And faith holds those greater values. It rearranges our whole value system. And my hope and prayer for us throughout you know, our lives here on earth is that that would happen in an increasing kind of way, that we would love what God loves, desire what God desires that we'd want the pleasure of God and our own integrity and eternal reward more than we would want the satisfaction of our flesh or the approval of the people around us. All right, let's go on into verse 27 and see a third thing that faith does. Number three, faith sees greater realities. 
Look at it again there in verse 27. It says, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. So what it tells us here is that by faith, you know, Moses, he departed from Egypt, and when he did, he was not afraid of the anger of the king. Now this does present a little bit of a problem. Maybe some of you have read the book of Exodus before, and you're saying to yourself at this point, hey, I, I read how it went down. Uh, Moses, of course, did leave Exodus t- or uh, uh, Egypt twice, uh, the second time with the nation of Israel, but it seems clear that he's not talking about that departure here because at that mo- moment, the king wasn't angry with Moses, but the king was desperate and begging them to leave. Moses didn't leave by himself at that time. He left with a whole nation of people, and he hasn't even talked yet about the Passover, which occurred first before he left. No, here he's talking about the first departure of Moses. And you maybe have read that first departure of Moses. He made the decision, I'm not Egyptian, I'm Hebrew, that's who I'm going to connect with. And he saw uh, an Egyptian man beating or mistreating a Hebrew slave. He grew angry, he rose up, struck the Egyptian, and he died. He buried the Egyptian in the sand, hoping that no one would see, hoping that no one would notice, but Someone noticed and word began to spread. And as word began to spread, Moses feared for his life. The king, Pharaoh, heard about it and put a hit out on Moses, and so Moses departed. It reads like he was afraid. That's how it reads. But here the author, who is very fluent in the Old Testament, the author of the book of Hebrews is no slouch when it comes to what the Old Testament teaches. He's quoting it all the time, referring to it all the time, finding stuff in it that you and I would never see by ourselves. So he's very versed in the Old Testament, and he says Moses didn't fear. You know, there came a point where he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king. What happened? What happened? It's so funny because you'll read all these different commentaries. Everybody's got all these you know, solutions for this problem or whatever. But I just think it's a very human experience. Have you ever been initially afraid and then been not afraid? Have you ever gone through the experience where the first jolt within you is, I'm terrified, and then God begins to speak to you? God begins to encourage you. God begins to electrify your heart. And then you come to a place of saying, you know, I mean, I, I like, there's a sense I am afraid, but I know he's with me. I'm not afraid. And apparently Moses had come to that place in his heart and in his life where he knew that God was with him. That's why it says in verse 27 that he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He's talking about God. He saw God. I mean, it's, it's a contradiction. He saw him who is unseeable. He, 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 with his eyes of faith, saw the one that cannot be seen. This is the life of faith, man. The life of faith is able to see greater realities. The life of faith is able to go beyond that which is seen, that which is visible, and is able to, to know that life is lived before God. I heard a song once talking about how we live for an audience of one, talking about God. 
You know, that ultimately there is this invisible God that he's, he's walking with us. He's watching us. He wants to help us. And Moses had come to a place where he knew God is there. God is with me. God is helping me. Now, again, I want to snap back to those original readers, these Hebrew Christians. Think about what they were going through. They needed to know that God was with them. They needed to know as friends and family members began to pressure them, as they began to be uninvited to things. They needed to know as, as, as people asked them, like, you, you really believe that Jesus is the Messiah? They, they needed to know in those moments that there was this invisible God who loved them, who cared for them because they were dealing with flesh and blood, tangible rejection. Yet they needed to know there's an invisible God who loves me. He cares for me. He's walking with me. He enjoys me. He wants me to experience him. And so I'm going to continue on in faith with him. All right, let's look at our last verse this morning. Verse 28, it says, By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. The fourth thing I want you to see about faith here in Moses is that faith clings to greater blood. Faith clings to greater blood, or you could say it this way, it clings to a greater salvation. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. After all, our great salvation, that we should not drift from it. Now, the people of Israel, you know, they went through the plagues with the Egyptians, but it was very clear as everything was unleashed upon the Egyptians that God favored the Israelite people. Like, for instance, when the plague of darkness, darkness that could be felt, came upon Egypt, there was no darkness in the land of Goshen, where the Hebrew people lived. So it's like, it didn't take a PhD to figure out whose team God was on. I mean, everybody knew. Everybody could see where this judgment had come from. But the fascinating thing is, is that Pharaoh, his heart just got harder and harder and harder and harder as each plague unfolded. It seems like initially his own heart was hard, and then eventually it begins to say that God was hardening his heart. It, the way I read it, at least, there was a hardening that he journeyed out on, and then God said, fine, I'll firm you up in the decision that you have made. He's an emblem of the, the full and complete rebellion and rejection of God. He was depraved. And in the midst of all of that, he could not be shaken. And he would not let the Hebrew people go. And so a final and tenth plague, and by the way, every one of those plagues was a direct judgment on one of the Egyptian false gods. That final and tenth plague, when it was time to come, you know, it was keep a lamb in your home on a specific day, kill the lamb, take the blood, put it on your door, cook the lamb, eat the lamb, wait inside. The angel of death is going to pass through Egypt. Every home that does not have the blood, the firstborn will die. It was terrible that night. Now, if you were to ask everybody on the street the week leading up to that, do you think it's possible that another plague is coming? I think the general answer would have been like, well, there's been nine. So, yeah, it's totally possible. We've had nine. The Hebrew people haven't been allowed to leave yet. 
it's very possible. So it didn't take a lot of faith to believe that a 10th plague might come. Here's what took a lot of faith. To believe that the blood of a lamb would save you from that plague. That's what took a lot of faith. That's what took a lot of conviction. And the Hebrew people, they did that. They took that blood from that lamb and they put it on the doorpost of their home. And of course, we as believers understand that it was emblematic of a greater blood that would come, the blood of Jesus. And that when we believe in him and trust in him, believe that he substituted himself for us on the cross, that his blood was shed to purchase us, to forgive us, to cleanse us, to pass over us, so to speak, that it would remove us from the judgment of God because the judgment of God was placed upon the lamb for us. That's what we believe, and we believe that the Passover was pointing to that great reality. It says in Isaiah 64, verse six, that we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. It says in Romans three, verse nine, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. This is our judgment. This is, what, this is the estimation of humanity. But it says in Revelation one, verse five, that Jesus loves us and has freed us, his people, from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Ultimately, faith clings to the blood of Jesus Christ, amen? All right, so let me wrap it up like this. Um, Jesus did something greater than Moses. You know, Moses came and applied the blood of the Passover, but Jesus came and brought his own blood. Moses believed in greater realities. He saw the invisible God, but Jesus came from God's throne room and he lived completely perfectly, always doing, he said, the will of his Father. If there was ever someone who lived with greater realities, it was Jesus. Moses left the sinful culture and luxury of Egypt, but Jesus left the pure and holy and undefiled riches of heaven to come and be for, become one with us. You know, Moses incarnated, so to speak, to become Hebrew, but Jesus became one of us, a far greater journey than Moses ever took. And Moses was born into danger only to have his parents protect him. But Jesus, knowingly, Moses had no part in planning when he'd be born, but Jesus knowingly became flesh, was born, became flesh and dwelt among us, knowing that he would not be preserved from death, but that he would go to death for you and for me. And why did he do all that? Why did he exhibit something greater than even Moses' faith? Well, he did that so that he could get us. Jesus, in telling his parables, he talked of a a man who saw a treasure in a field and for joy over that treasure sold everything that he had so he could buy the field just so he could get the treasure. And he told another parable right after it about a merchant who had all these different treasures but he saw a pearl of great price and he sold everything that he had 
so that he could buy that one pearl of great price. And it's been popular over the years for Christians to interpret those parables to mean that to become a Christian, what you need to do is you need to understand how much of a treasure Jesus is. And you need to forsake everything. And you need to sell everything. And you need to lay down everything in order to get him. But I'm in the camp that doesn't think that's, the, I, I don't think that's the right interpretation of those parables. Because for, for one, it doesn't sound like what conversion has to be in the New Testament. It doesn't sound like my conversion. I know I didn't lay down everything in my life to get Jesus. I'm still trying to figure out how to lay down things in my life. I wasn't a perfect dedication. Oh, I'm going to sell everything and follow after you. No, it was meager. It was weak. Lord, please, if you'll have me, take me. If you'll forgive me, forgive me. Thank you. No, it seems that the one who sold everything was Jesus. The one who laid everything down was Jesus. And then he came. And what did he get? Well, he bought the world so he could get the little treasure, his church, his people inside the world. He came to, he got rid of everything else so he could get us his pearl of great price. And, and if you're sitting here today saying to yourself like, well, of course I'm a treasure and I'm a pearl. My mom's been telling me that my whole life. Well, whatever. I'm glad you feel that way about yourself. But I know me. And it's amazing to me that the Lord would think of me in that kind of way. You know, Moses took a great step, but Jesus took a greater step. And it's him that we rejoice in this morning. All right, I'm going to close in prayer. And as I close in prayer, I want to pray a prayer not just to like end the time together, but I want to pray specifically for those of you who are in positions of prominence or leadership in our community because um, I think about Moses and what he had to go through, and I think a lot of you, it's sometimes tricky to navigate your Christian faith in the roles that some of you have in this community. You know, how do I navigate it and, you know, still hold fast to my Christianity, but how do I do this? I'm thinking of teachers, I'm thinking of people in the military that are leading others, I'm thinking of uh, business professionals that are responsible for a staff and, and all of that. And I just want to pray for you and ask that the Lord would help you with the wisdom like Moses had to just know how to navigate some of those things. So Father, I I just want to close by asking, Lord, that you would have mercy upon us as your people. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen uh, my brothers and sisters in Christ to find themselves, Lord, in those positions of leadership and prominence and are asking, like Moses, that question, who am I? I, I know who I am and I know who I want to connect with. Lord, I pray that you give them wisdom and discernment Lord, like Solomon. I pray that you'd help them to be wise as serpents, yet gentle as doves. I pray that you'd allow their speech to be filled with grace and seasoned with salt, Lord God. I pray that they'd always be able to give a defense for the hope that's inside, Lord, of them. I pray, Father, that you'd help them not to be caught on their heels, but, Lord, on the offensive with the love of Christ, able to love the people that are in their care and jurisdiction. Lord, I pray for those who are feeling pressure in their career, in their workplace, or in their family, 
they're feeling pressure knowing that their Christianity is there and, 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 and they're being perhaps even questioned or, or wondering how to navigate sticky landmines that are coming. Lord, I just pray and ask that you give them incredible discernment, Lord God, to know what to do and that you'd bring, Lord, wise brothers and sisters in Christ into their lives who can comfort them and also encourage them and help them as they navigate that path. Lord, would you stand with them? Every teacher that's here, every person that's in leadership, every military member that's here, Lord, give them grace and mercy as they navigate those positions that you have put, Lord, in their lives. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you, and we ask, Lord, that your hand of grace would be upon our church family this week. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our senior pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.